Hello, Freedom Fighters, and welcome to the First in Freedom podcast, where we discuss current threats to our freedom, how they impact us here at home, and what we can do to stop it. It's National School Choice Week, so this week's episode is dedicated to celebrating educational freedom in the Tar Heel State. It's your child, your choice. I'm your host, Jason Fibbs, and we're taking freedom back. Freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation away from extinction. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. So what is National School Choice Week? Uh, Well, according to SchoolChoiceWeek.com, quote, created in 2011, National School Choice Week is a not-for-profit charitable effort to raise awareness of effective K-12 education options for children. We focus equally on traditional public schools, public charter schools, public magnet schools, private schools, online schools, and home schools. By researching and developing comprehensive and unbiased web-based resources, we work year-round to help parents better understand their school choice options and navigate the process of finding schools or learning environments that best meet their children's needs, end quote. And you can find that again. That's on schoolchoiceweek.com. Uh, that's sort of a, a great national site to go to, and they have a ton of information and resources there you can take advantage of. Um, but this week, the 23rd um, through the end of the week, I guess the 29th, um, is National School Choice Week. And so we want to celebrate that here on the show today. Um, one of the ways I want to do that is by sharing my own school choice story uh, within my family. So one is uh, when my wife and I, I guess really even before we got married, um, when we just were you know talking about marriage and, and talking about children and things of that nature, um, though we were both raised in public school, we knew that we wanted both uh, or wanted our children um, to go to Christian school. And obviously that was rooted in our values and beliefs. And we knew that was something that we had missed in our own education. Uh, we saw a big gap in that and in, in seeing Christ at the center of everything um, and knowing the influence that um, Christianity has had uh, on our nation and really on the world, obviously. So um, that was something that uh, we wanted to be grounded in and, and wanted for our children. So when uh, our two boys came along, we uh, sent them to a local private Christian school. Um, that school only went K through eighth grade. And so um, they went there, and I, I, again, we appreciated the opportunity for them to be there and the type of education that they were getting. Um, once they got to eighth grade, obviously, we, you know, really all along, we were thinking about, okay, what are we going to do for high school? It was kind of a running joke between my wife and I every year. It was like, okay, we've only got six years left. Okay, we've only got four years left. Um, and so we ultimately decided to homeschool uh, for high school. Um, we live in a, you know, Stanley County is a pretty rural area. There's not a lot of options um, out there. And uh, we had done some looking around, but ultimately we, we thought that homeschooling was best um, for us and for our children. So we used a, a series of resources for that. Um, and I'll link these resources in the show notes so that you can um, check them out later. But uh, one of them is HSLDA Online Academy. So that uh, stands for Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Um, they're a great organization up in Northern Virginia. Um, obviously, not only do they do a lot of legal work on behalf of homeschoolers, but they've also set up an online academy, uh, which I believe runs from 7th through 12th grades. Um, and so that's where uh, our children took advantage of some of that. They ha- also had AP classes uh, through uh, HSLDA Online Academy. 
our kids both took advantage of Stanley Community College, um, so we did some classes there. Um, one of my uh, sons did Liberty University Online Academy, so Liberty University out of Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, obviously, they're the largest private Christian university in the world. Um, they have a K-12 academy as well. And so he did um, dual credit enrollment classes um, through there. And so that was, um, got a lot of benefit from that as well. Um, other resources that are out there, um, we used um, Bob Jones University textbooks. We use Veritas, um, other different, you know, really that's the beauty of homeschooling, right? Anything you want to use, you can use. And so my wife did a lot of work to put together good resources for them to take advantage of to um, aid their education. Um, after their uh, sort of public or after after their K twelve education, they went to private. Both went to private Christian colleges. Um, my oldest went to Patrick Henry College in Northern Virginia, which is uh, essentially where the HSLDA um, online academy is is hosted, or at least where that association um, is based. And so this small uh, small private Christian school up there, I think they only have about three hundred or so in enrollment. Uh, but right outside of D.C., and they do a, a tremendous job of, of putting kids into uh, high uh, academic institutions and then uh, for graduate school, that is, and, and also within D.C. And then uh, my youngest is going to or is finishing up at Liberty University, um, and so he's getting a degree there. Um, so both, again, you know, we've done Christian education all the way through. Um, to the very end. And, um, you know, so the question becomes, how do you do that? You know, well, you know, maybe Jason, you're rich and that's, you can do that or whatever. I'll be the first to tell you, I'm definitely not rich. Um, you know, the way we did it quite simply is just through sacrifice. Um, and that's what it takes. Um, my wife, uh, she stayed at home until the kids were old enough to go to school. And then when they were old enough to go to school, she actually taught at the, the private Christian school where they went. And so that gave us uh, a big, you know, I think we got discounts or I think we got free tuition actually for the kids as a result of that. Um, so that was a huge um, help to us in addition to bringing in some additional income. Um, so there's different ways you can do it. Um, you know, we have a small house. I mean, we, you know, our house is 1200 or so square feet. Um, we've, you know, we, we buy new cars, but we keep those cars basically until they fall apart. So, you know, that's another thing that we've done over the years. Um, so we just, you know, we, we, we go small, we hold on to things, um, you know, from a vacation perspective, you know, we never did a lot of big fancy vacations. You know, we would go to the beach every now and again. And, you know, we went to places like Williamsburg and we did uh, take a trip to Disney once um, as a family, which was a great um, opportunity. But bottom line is, is that, you know, we were always sacrificing. We knew that, these expenses, whether it was specific to private school or even if it was just saving for college, these were things that we cared deeply about. And, you know, we put our money where our values are, essentially. You know, you, you've, I'm sure you've heard people say before, you know, that if you if you want to see what someone values, look at their checkbook. Um, and that's the way we've tried to live. Um, so it wasn't easy. Um, we had to make sacrifices to do that. Um, but God was gracious. You know, God has provided uh, very faithfully um, to, you know, help us live out his word. And so um, that's that's something that I just believe very strongly in is that um, when you do whatever it is that God is calling you to do, that he's going to make a way for you. And, and again, that doesn't mean it's easy, um, but uh, but you will get through. 
after that, I mean, I guess sort of thinking about, uh, you know, after our own children, as they're sort of, you know, moving on and starting to get out on their own um, and, and deciding sort of how they want to live their life. And, and my wife and I now are, you know, kind of thinking past that. We had always been very passionate about Christian education. You know, as I mentioned before, um, my wife taught in Christ, uh, a few Christian schools. Um, I love teaching as well and have taught in different capacities, um, whether it be in my job or, or at church, et cetera. Um, and so um, Christian education was something that we always wanted to be a part of. Um, we, we've always sort of dreamed of an opportunity to do that. Well, in uh, the end of 2019, we decided that we were going to move forward and pull the trigger and, and finally start our own uh, private Christian school. Um, and so we, in, going into 2020, in the, in the year of the pandemic, of course, um, you know, don't, don't tell me God didn't have a sense of humor. We started Heritage Classical Academy. Uh, here in Albemarle, North Carolina, um, and we just started with kindergarten, and we're adding a grade each year. So um, we did kindergarten in, in 2020. We uh, added first grade this school year, and then of course next year second grade, and so on and so forth. So, you know, with uh, you know, Lord willing, um, and, uh, uh, and 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 p- local people interested, um, this is something that um, we love to do and are so excited to be able to do and just be a part of for however long it lasts. So, you know, not only educating our own children um, uh, within the faith specifically and providing that sort of Christian foundation from a school choice perspective that we thought was best for our children, we've seen the challenges and the struggles for other families, and we want to make that accessible for all so uh, the mission of our school, just to, and again, I'll provide a link um, to our school website in the show notes for those who want to check that out, um, regardless of where you are, because you may, if you're in another part of the state, you may want to start your own school to that effect if you don't already have one there in your area. But uh, the mission of our school is to provide an excellent Christ-centered classical education um, to the children of Stanley County. And we've got five core values um, that we center around. One is Christ-centered, and that's self-explanatory, and I've talked a little bit about that. Second is classical curriculum. And so um, we follow sort of a classical model, and I won't take time here to go all into that, but there's a lot sort of behind that methodology, um, and it's rooted in classical traditions um, and sort of how people were educated before the Progressive Era came along in the early 1900s. Um, so this is really more of the traditional mode of education than what we consider today, you know, what we call traditional education now. The third core value is parental partnership. And by parental partnership, one of the things we know and, and the research shows is that the key to um, academic performance and attainment for a child is parental involvement. And so we believe in the dignity and the authority of the parent, that um, that God has established the parent as to be the key person responsible for a child's education, not the school, not the government. It's not, it's not our job. Um, it is we are helpers. We are to come alongside parents and help them do what God has entrusted to them. And so that partnership between the parents and the teachers, the parents and the administration is so important. And we want that to be a a collegial, you know, friendly, cooperative relationship, not one where we're adversaries. You know, it's not, you know, us against them. We are working together to help their child. So parental partnership is key. High expectations um, is the fourth one. And by high expectations, I don't mean, you know, we expect everybody to get A's. 
or that we expect everybody to be a genius. That's not what we're talking about. Um, what we mean by high, high expectations is that everyone does their best, whether it be student, teacher, parent, whomever it is that, that is involved in the child's education, that everyone does their best. And so that's essentially all we expect out of the children um, is to give it their all, to do everything for the glory of God. And then finally, um, the last value is affordable access. And again, this, as I alluded to before, is key for us is that we want this type of education to be available for all families, not just those who are wealthy or who have resources. So thanks to programs like the State Voucher Program here in North Carolina, the North Carolina Opportunity Scholarship, and you'll hear more about that, um, that allows us to help defer or defray the cost and make it affordable for everybody. So we have a, a income-adjusted tuition scale. And so depending on how much you make, we adjust uh, your tuition according to your income. And then the Opportunity Scholarship helps with funding as well as donations uh, from partners, you know, in the area. So um, if this is something, uh, if this is a mission that you believe strongly in and you would like to help us in that mission, uh, we'd love uh, for you to contribute to that and would uh, certainly value your donation. So the website uh, for our school is myheritageclassical.com. Um, we're now enrolling for next year, um, grades uh, kindergarten through second grade for the 2022-23 school year. So uh, that's essentially our school choice story that, you know, for us, uh, valuing a Christian education, um, wanting to provide the opportunities that we wanted for our children, um, not having to fight a lot of the cultural wars that are out there, um, that you sort of see on a day-to-day -day basis. That was the decision we made. And so we, we you know, took actions and made sacrifices that allowed us to do that. And so um, with the, the freedom that we've been given, you know, by our federal and now and as well state constitutions, um, that has afforded us um, these opportunities. So that's what we want to highlight today. So now let's get to news you need to know. So for this week, uh, we're going to keep it focused on School Choice Week with respect to our news stories. And so the first one here comes from the Carolina Journal, um, and it uh, is titled, In Curious Reversal, Cooper Proclaims January 23rd through the 29th, North Carolina National School Choice Week. And I was as blown away as I'm sure most others were about this. Um, the article goes on to say, uh, Governor Roy Cooper has been a stalwart opponent of school choice since securing the governor's office in 2016. That makes a proclamation from his office declaring January 23rd to the 29th National School Choice Week in the Tar Heel State all the more surprising. The proclamation affirms that North Carolina is, quote, home to a multitude of high-quality public and non-public schools from which parents can choose for their children in addition to families who educate their children in the home, end quote. The proclamation also states that, quote, education variety not only helps to diversify our economy, but also enhances the vibrancy of our community, end quote, and that, quote, high quality teaching professionals, end quote, can be found in both public and private schools. Uh, quite an in interesting statement given Governor Cooper's record where he has been, um, you know, as it said before, a staunch opponent of school choice. He has uh, repeatedly in his uh, annual budget recommendations wanted to end the North Carolina Opportunity Scholarship Program, um, not just 
curtail it or reduce it, but to end it. Um, he has also been uh, an, uh, an opponent of charter schools and the expansion of charter schools. Um, so, you know, he has been traditional public school only all the way. Um, and in fact, what's interesting is that as folks have followed up, people from the John Locke Foundation and others who have followed up with the governor's office, they can't really get any explanation. Um, so no one's really clear exactly how this happened, if this was somehow a mistake, um, if this was maybe an, a, a tip of the cap in, in you know, with concern to a, a Republican wave election coming later this year and Governor Cooper trying to keep Republicans from getting a supermajority. Uh, we don't quite know, but uh, one thing's for sure, I don't think uh, Governor Cooper has necessarily had a change of heart, um, but nevertheless, we'll take the good news um, as it comes. So uh, always good to see support from our state officials on, uh, on freedom of educational choice. The next one comes from directly from the John Locke Foundation, and this is a poll. These next two are polls. Um, one is a poll that says North Carolina voters want choice and like opportunity scholarship program. So this was a, a new poll that was reported last December by the Parents for Educational Freedom in North Carolina. That's another good group you might want to check out. Um, it provides more good news uh, for school choice supporters here in North Carolina. Um, the survey polled 500 likely voters on a variety of school choice issues. And when asked if they could send their child to the best school with no concern about cost or distance, 38% of respondents said they would choose a traditional public school, 11% would choose a charter school, 11% a non-religious private school, 22% a religious private school, while 9% would choose a homeschool. So you can see there, um, the data clearly shows that parents want variety. Uh, that that's clear, and and in fact, the majority, um, if you add that up, um, 62% want a non-traditional public school option. So again, no matter what your preference is, clearly the people want choice. So parents want choice, voters want choice, um, and not only that, but the uh, survey went on to say that 62% of respondents favored North Carolina's Opportunity Scholarship Program compared to only 28% who opposed the program. So. It's definitely a minority of people who are in opposition to the state voucher program um, and certainly a, a vast majority of people that support it. And so um, that I wanted to call that out because that just shows what the people of the state want. Now, this next poll here, which was um, actually more recent here in January, this poll um, is with respect to the teachers. So edchoice.org, which is a national organization, they did a they do a poll quarterly. And the title of this one was Most Teachers Support School Choice. Um, so this was reported from December 16th to the 24th. Um, Morning Consult surveyed 1,000 K-12 teachers nationwide about COVID-19, school choice, and other build, uh, budding topics surrounding education. One of the key findings was that major school choice policies remain popular with most teachers. And that's a direct quote from the... Um, from the uh, write-up, and it goes on to say, quote, after teachers received basic definitions of terms, education savings accounts, school vouchers, and charter schools received some or strong support from 77%, 57%, and 64% respectively. Teachers who work at private or charter schools supported each of these policies more than district school teachers, and teachers with fewer than 15 years of experience were more supportive than teachers with more experience. 
Vouchers were the least popular of the three major school choice policies among teachers, though voucher support grew amongst all teacher groups when more information was provided. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about this survey was not only that most teachers um, also support school choice, but that when they were given more information about what school choice means, like what do we mean when we say school choice? What are some of the facts behind school choice? For example, uh, many teachers uh, vastly underestimate how much funding public, traditional public schools get. And once that information was shared, once they learned more about state voucher programs and how they work, the numbers or the percentage of those teachers who supported those programs increased across the board. So as normal, you know, information uh, certainly helps. You know, information is power and information helps people understand what's going on. And a lot of times um, the, the views that people have on things, unfortunately, comes out of ignorance. So um, it's good to see that um, and, and great to see that. And just really to illustrate here to, to the audience here, to you guys, that not only do the people and voters and parents support school choice, but also teachers um, as well. Um, I, all, I did went in and did a little bit of data pulling of my own. And this was really just to see the growth of school choice um, in North Carolina. So. Um, as I've said on the show before, in 2010, Republicans c- took control of the General Assembly, both House and Senate, for the first time in 100 years. And since then, they have been on a steady march uh, advocating for school choice uh, policies um, and, and legislation. And so um, I just wanted to give a little example of, of what an impact that's made. So in 2011-2012, in which was 10 years ago. So the latest data that we have is 2020 to 2021. So if we go back 10 years from there, what we can see is that I looked at private school, public school, charter school, which is also public school, but we'll say non-traditional public school, and then homeschool. I looked at all four of those categories and measured how many students have changed over time. So what has been the percent either increase or decrease in each of those um, school choices since uh, over the past 10 years. Uh, For traditional public school, traditional public school has decreased by 2%. Private school has increased by 12%. Homeschool has increased by 126%. And charter school students have increased by 183%. So as you can see, homeschooling, charter schooling, private schooling has all increased significantly over the last 10 years and probably not a surprise that charter schools um, and homeschools have increased the most given just the cost perspective. Uh, Private schools obviously present more financial challenges, although, as I've said before, the North Carolina Opportunity Scholarship Program continues to expand and is helping more and more people um, choose that uh, for their families. Um, So the other thing is the breakdown in terms of if you look at the overall breakdown of those folks who are going to traditional public school versus one of the three alternatives. So if we kind of group them all together, what we saw 10 years ago was that one in eight students went to an alternative uh, type of school choice, Uh, one in eight. Now that has basically doubled to one in four. So there's been a huge shift um, as you can see there, you know, as you can hear, in um, school choice in North Carolina. And so, you know, kudos and, and thanks to all of the um, primarily Republicans, but not all Republicans. There are some Democrats as well who have supported school choice legislation. So kudos to all those in the North Carolina General Assembly um, who have helped promote 
school choice legislation over the years. It's made a huge impact, and we can see it in the numbers. So uh, great, uh, great progress there. So that's the news you need to know. And now let's get to today's Freedom Focus. In today's Freedom Focus, I'm honored to uh, be able to play for you an interview I did with Dr. Terry Stoops on school choice in North Carolina. Uh, Just to give a little bit of background on Dr. Stoops before I play the interview, Dr. Stoops is the director of the Center for Effective Education at the John Locke Foundation. Before joining the Locke Foundation in 2005, he worked as the program assistant for the Child Welfare Education Programs at the University of Pittsburgh School of Social Work. He taught English at Spotsylvania High School and served as an adjunct instructor in professional communication at the University of Mary Washington. During his doctoral studies, Stoops was a research assistant in the Department of Leadership, Foundations, and Policy at the University of Virginia School of Education and Human Development. He is a co-founder of Carolina Charter Academy, a public charter school located in Angier, North Carolina. In 2021, he was appointed to the North Carolina Charter School Advisory Board by Lieutenant Mark Robinson. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, that is. Dr. Stoops earned a bachelor's degree in speech communication from Clarion University and a master's degree in administrative and policy studies from the University of Pittsburgh School of Education. He earned a Ph.D. in social foundations of education from the University of Virginia School of Education and Human Development. He received a certificate in education finance from the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. So, So thankful to be able to spend some time with Dr. Stoops. Um, And so check out this interview. Dr. Stoops, uh, welcome to the First in Freedom podcast. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I guess let's just start off with some foundational questions with respect to school choice. So first of all, based on your experience and and research, uh, what would you say is the goal of school choice advocates overall? Well, that really varies depending on which advocates you talk to. And you find that many of the advocates in the school choice space are looking to ensure that one segment of the school choice uh, uh, side uh, is is given the ability to give parents the access and resources to be able to, uh, to attend those schools. So you have school choice advocates for homeschools, for private schools, uh, uh, for charters, public charter schools, and they really want to see those sectors expanded, and and for very good reason. I mean, those are different means by which parents can access school choice, and they all have their advantages and disadvantages. But for me, the goal of the school choice movement should really be to expand school choice across all sectors. In other words, to ensure that school choice is available both in the public and the private and the homeschool spheres as much as possible, and and to ensure that parents have as much access and resources at their disposable to at their disposal to be able to access those different options. Because you find that some uh, types of school choice work better in some places than others. Uh, I think if you look at rural communities, for example, there, there may not be uh, as many 
private schools in those areas. And so talking about a aggressive expansion of school choice, uh, private school choice in a rural community would seem kind of silly to a, to a lot of uh, individuals. But these are areas where there are opportunities to open uh, public charter schools or to expand home schools. And I think that that would probably be uh, uh, more in tune with what kind of schools those families have access to. So uh, broadly speaking, providing additional access to different types of choice really depends on so many different factors. And it should be the the, the goal of the school choice movement in general, just to make sure that choice is generally available uh, to parents, uh, as much choice as possible uh, with regard to whatever types of choices they will have available in their uh, respective areas. Great. And I guess with respect to that, so obviously there are opponents um, to school choice, um, obviously two, two very differing sides of the issue. Do you believe school choice is good for all North Carolinians? I do. I, I absolutely do. Uh, and, it, and it's not just uh, based on the policy uh, of the matter. I'm a, I'm a parent myself. Uh, my children have attended uh, public schools of choice mainly. It's been tremendous for them. And I think the main advantage to school choice is the idea that we have dispersed information. That might may sound like a complicated kind of concept, but when you think about it, it really makes sense. So every parent knows critical information about their children. They know their likes and dislikes. They know um, uh, basically uh, the way that they function emotionally and intellectually in the home. And that information is absolutely critical in determining how to educate a child. And while parents uh, may discount the, the knowledge that they have about their children and how that knowledge applies to the school that best meets their needs, uh, they really hold the key amounts and types of information necessary to make informed decisions about the education of their children. Otherwise, we have a system like we do now in a lot of places where their child's education their setting is determined by where they live. And that's a really poor way of determining how and what kind of what kind of education their child receives because it says absolutely nothing, maybe except for their affluence uh, with regard to uh, what kind of uh, education their child receives. And not only that, uh, they enter a classroom with a new teacher that may have a few test scores, but really doesn't understand their, the, the emotional uh, side of, of the um, uh, services that best would serve the, the children in their classroom. They just happen to be assigned to a classroom uh, based on uh, usually factors that have nothing to do with their abilities or their needs. And so uh, it, it seems to me that the best approach would be to find ways to maximize the information that parents have about their child and to allow their parents 
a broad number of options in which to put their child in a specific setting that meets their needs. And that's why school choice is good for all North Carolinians uh, and not just for specific segments of the population, even though we're in a situation now where we only extend school choice options to certain groups uh, in certain areas because of the limitations placed on the school choice movement by government. Uh, mm -hmm. Any limitation that we have right now is based on the constraints uh, that have been created by the General Assembly, the federal government, the courts, local um, uh, county commissions and school boards, but it's not really based on the idea that uh, placing limitations on parents is really in the best interest of, of what uh, is necessary to educate their children in the best and most appropriate way possible. Right, and so to your point, um, and I totally agree that, that school choice gives parents the opportunity to choose what is best for their child, and they know better than anyone else what is best for their child. Um, school choice advocates also um, propose, or, or I guess uh, argue, that school choice or school choice options improves the overall quality of education as well. Do you agree with that? And if so, how does that happen? Well, it really does. Uh, and and we, have, we have some research that tells us uh, that uh, there is a, an effect that school choice has on uh, public schools in their vicinity. We have, we have 27 studies, uh, and these are studies using the most rigorous methods. These are random assignment method, methods. The focus on public school students' test scores when there is choice available within that area. And 25 of those show positive effects on public school test scores, not just the test scores of students moving to a school of choice. Um, part of that is a function of competition. Uh, we know that as there is increased competition for students, there is a greater awareness by traditional public schools that the funding follows the student, and therefore, in order to be financially viable, you have to attract students, and that means making adjustments to their own program to ensure that they're attracting students. As parents become more aware of the test scores that are out there, the information available about test scores, they become more cognizant of the ability of the schools to be able to produce good outcomes for students. And, and that is really, uh, I think, something that we discount a lot when we talk about uh, the ability of public schools um, to compete with uh, schools of choice is that the amount of information about test scores is more readily available than it has been ever before. And so that actually increases the competition. It increases parental awareness of how different schools perform and allows them to make different, uh, parents to make different decisions based on information that before was very difficult to find. I think one of the things that the Republican General Assembly did a few years ago, which was absolutely critical, I believe, in increasing the amount of competition and making parents more informed consumers of schools is to incorporate an A through F grading system for schools. And it's not perfect. And there's always debate right. every year that we're going to change the formula to, to that we use to grade schools. 
But before we used some of the most confusing labels for schools and how they were performing. And now we have them A through F. And uh, this is only for charter and traditional public schools, um, but still is a very, very good guide to how schools are doing and has really increased the stakes when it comes to competing for uh, parental dollars in areas where there's a robust school choice marketplace. And I guess to the grading system aspect, that, that triggers sort of thought in my mind around apples to apples comparisons, right? Because like you said, we want to give parents the ability to see the, not only the options that they have, but but the quality of those options. And so are you aware of any efforts that uh, either may have been tried in the past or people may be looking at now to try to bring some type of a comparison, not only with within the public schools, but then also the non-traditional public schools as well to sort of get that comparison, whether it be private school, charters, et cetera? Yeah, and 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 this is uh, this is something that we've uh, debated for years about whether, uh, for example, a private school should have to take uh, the tests that are mandated by the state. And I absolutely don't think they should because they're not good tests. And so why should we subject right. uh, private schools to bad tests? Exactly. Um, I think there are ways to to come at uh, comparability that uh, you know we can talk about. But uh, right now. Um, I don't think uh, asking home and private school students to take state tests makes a whole lot of sense in helping us try to compare how these sectors are performing. I think a better approach would be to look at the tests that are taken by homeschool and private school students. These tend to be, be nationally normed tests, um, tests that I, I think most people trust, like the Iowa Test of Basic Skills, California Achievement Test. Uh, tests that have been, have really proven their worth over the decades. I mean, I I took the Iowa test of basic skills when I was a young kid. It's still around. It's still used by a lot of uh, private and and homeschoolers. These are the tests that I think that our public school students should be taking. Uh, they should meet the private and the homeschoolers where they are, rather than asking the home and private school students to, to at, meet where the, where the districts are. Because right now, the state testing program that we have with state uh, tests that are developed by the state, uh, I, I think no one is really satisfied with that uh, approach except for the state. And I don't think uh, a lot of teachers are satisfied with it. Uh, public school teachers really dislike the state te uh, testing program. And for good reason. The, the tests are, I think, a, a very poor gauge of how students are doing. Uh, they, they don't, uh, I, I think, accurately represent what teachers do in the classroom. And I think that standardized testing is important, but relying on the system that we have, the state implemented system that we have now, is a really poor way to do that. So th there are ways to, to get comparability. Uh, otherwise, the, the way to do it is the way that um, some researchers at NC State tried to get uh, some comparison between students that participate in the Opportunity Scholarship Program, which is the state's voucher program for low-income children. Mm -hmm. um, and what they did was they, they administered a test to those students and to willing uh, students in school districts and then were able to compare the two and they found that the opportunity scholarship program was really benefiting uh, the students that were participating in the program as compared as compared to a group that were in the district schools and and that was a very difficult approach and I think it was while it was worthwhile to have that information 
it's something that can't be done uh, regularly because of, of the difficulty in getting districts to volunteer to administer an additional test to their students that could then be compared to private school students. Right. Yeah. And I know there's already a lot of complaints among public school parents about the number of tests that the kids have to take oh, today. Um you know, and, and I think another thing, too, when it comes to those those comparisons, you know, they don't have to be mandatory. That's another thing, too, is that there could be ways, I guess, that, that different entities and they could even be uh, nonprofit entities could create ways for to say, hey, here's an opt in type of test for private schools or home schools or whatever. And coming up with some sort of you know objective standard that people could participate in and let the free market create pressure. For people to compete as opposed to saying, okay, the state's going to mandate everybody's got to take this test. When, like you said, there's a lot of politics involved in what should be on the test and who gets to decide and all of that. So that's a fair point. Um, so I guess moving into the progress that's being made with respect to school choice, we finally have a state budget <laughs> this at the end of last year, which I know it's taken a few years to get one from Governor Cooper, but uh, managed to squeeze one out. Um, would you mind just taking a few moments to share the progress uh, that was made in that state budget with respect to school choice? Sure. And uh, without a doubt, it was a long time coming. I think, uh, you know, those of us that are that work in the General Assembly or around the General Assembly uh, thought that, you know, uh, it, the, the session went way too long. So uh, we were we were ecstatic uh, to see the changes in the budget. Uh, increase in the Opportunity Scholarship Program was $49 million over two years. We had an increase in the scholarship amount for those Opportunity Scholarship students. These are low-income students um, to, to nearly $6,000, where previously it was only $4,200. So there's an increase in the scholarship amount. There's money to educate parents uh, and inform them about the scholarship. And in other words, do some public relations work to, to bring more parents into the Opportunity Scholarship Program. Household eligibility was increased from 150 to 175% of the amount to qualify for a free reduced lunch. That means that before a family of four uh, could only make $73,000 uh, a year as an annual household income to qualify for an opportunity scholarship. Now that's increased to $85,000 a year for a family of four. And, and if you think about it, you know, that, that's still a pretty low amount, but that will open it up for additional families to be able to access these close to $6,000 scholarships for private schools. We saw an increase in the uh, funds for the voucher reserve. There was a uh, consolidation of the uh, disability grant program and the education savings account for special needs children. And uh, this is a great move because as it transitions into a larger education savings account, this will allow uh, parents with special needs children to use public dollars not just for tuition, but for therapeutic equipment, for um, uh, individual therapy, for any number of different items that can be used to enhance the education of their children. Uh, and as these programs combine, the General Assembly actually increased the amount of money available to both of those programs for this current calendar year, uh, as well as the program going forward. So we saw tremendous amounts of progress uh, in these programs. 
we had hoped, given the amount of Biden bucks that came into North Carolina, that there would be more progress with taking those money uh, monies and giving them to parents for tutoring programs. We pushed really hard um, along with our school choice coalition to try to ensure that those Biden bucks didn't just go to uh, the traditional public school system, as, as many of them did, but that we would set up a program where parents recognizing that their children were way behind. And unfortunately, too many parents are not starting to realize just how behind their children are, would be able to contract with individual educators and programs and, and learning centers for one-on-one -on -one tutoring for their children. We didn't get it done uh, this session. We hope uh, that in the short session in 2022, we're going to push legislators to ensure that so many of those Biden bucks that are honestly going to be wasted actually end up in the hands of parents, allowing parents to address the learning loss, which is very real and can be very tragic for a lot of these families. Yeah, and I guess related to the increase uh, in the, the opportunity scholarship amount, um, wasn't that uh, wasn't the change due to them anchoring it to some percentage of overall per student allocation? And if so, what, why is that important? Like, what does that say about what the General Assembly is trying to do and how they're deciding on these amounts? Yeah, that's an absolutely critical point, because in the past it was it was a a, a set amount of forty two hundred dollars. That was the maximum. And now it is indexed to the state average per pupil expenditure, uh, and it's 90% of the state average per pupil expenditure. So that's not the total, that's just the amount that the state spends. And that means that that amount is going to go up every year because Lord knows the state continues to pour money into our traditional public school system. Right. So as that happens, uh, we're, we're gonna see more money for the Opportunity Scholarship Program. Um, and, and the pro private schools that educate uh, these children are happy about that because they're seeing costs rise uh, given the amount of uh, inflationary pressures on schools in, in purchasing goods and services, uh, especially for, for, for children. Uh, they are seeing their costs rise and the difficulty in recruiting teachers uh, they are uh, absolutely thrilled to be able to see additional funds be able to offset the increased costs. Absolutely. Yeah, we are one of those schools and we are thrilled to see it as well. <laughs> um, one thing I thought I read, and I just want to check this to see if it actually made the final version, but I believe uh, now county governments can also take they can allocate money as well to increase the opportunity scholarship within their county. Was that, is that true? Did I read that right? Uh, there, there is a, a provision uh, to that effect. I, I'm not entirely sure that it passed. Okay. Um, and, and this is, this is one of those issues where in the rare instance where a county would choose to be able to, uh, provide additional funds for the Opportunity Scholarship Program, they could do so. I think the vast majority of counties probably would not necessarily be on board with that. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of these provisions with the thought that there was some interest by some uh, county commissions to provide additional funding for Opportunity Scholarship students, knowing that there was such strong demand. 
many county commissions might not know this already, but some of the, the public dollars are already used to educate students in private schools for special needs students that can't be educated in a traditional public school. There's a very small number of special needs students um, where there's a district that decides they can't educate them and they would be better off being educated in a private school. And so there are public dollars that, fun, fun, that uh, follow that student. Uh, and, and so th that is kind of already part of it. And I think some of the thinking was, well, if that exists for uh, some of the special needs students, then maybe that it should follow that the opportunity scholarship students should also have access to those funds. Um, you, you know, there were so many proposals there being thrown in at the end of the session. It was kind of hard to keep track of, right. of where, what made it in and what didn't. And uh, unfortunately, there were too many of those provisions, including the ones for the tutoring program that I mentioned earlier that didn't make it in, that would have been much welcomed by families. But, um, you know, I think there was a, a desire for a lot of legislators to get done uh, before the end of the calendar year, right. given how long this session had lasted. Yeah. And I, I only bring it up because I just, I want the audience and the folks out there within the respective areas to be aware of the opportunities that they have locally to continue to promote school choice. And that even within the local governments, you know, they're, the counties are allocating their own dollars towards education, which is adding up to that total per student uh, expenditure. So uh, any opportunities that they may have in order to, to influence that, I think is something that people at least should advocate for if they feel strongly about it. Um, moving on to some of the objections, because uh, there certainly are uh, objections out there to, to school choice. Um, I, I wanted to reference an article that I found um, from North Carolina Policy Watch. And for those in my audience who aren't aware, North Carolina Policy Watch is probably, I, I, I don't know if you would say this, uh, Dr. Stoops, but one of the leading progressive organizations within our state pr promoting progressive ideas, et cetera. But uh, they had an article called Nine Ways in Which School Choice and Its Overzealous Backers Are Harmful to North Carolina Public Schools. And in there, they detail sort of a series of objections um, as to, to why they think it's bad. So I'm just going to kind of highlight a few of these, and I'd love to get your response. So one of them centers around this idea that, you know, for all the criticism of traditional public schools, they would be so much better off if we would just stop diverting money away from them to these alternatives and spend that money in the public school where it belongs. What do you say to that? Well, we we had uh, decades in North Carolina where there were no alternatives. You look at uh, North Carolina before charter schools, uh, even before homeschools were officially legalized in 1985, um, and, and private schools were a small fraction of the total uh, student population. And, and the question was, were, were they better? Uh, were there, those schools doing a better job of, of educating students? Were, were they um, uh, were there schools uh, that were universally uh, systems that were universally high quality? And the answer is no. I mean, um, the unfortunate part, uh, and, you, and you go to some of these areas in North Carolina, and you find that uh, they have been uh, undereducating or miseducating children for generations. And they have had a tremendous amount of dollars thrown at them through the years. We have, um, and this is the one point I think that is, is often missed. We have the one, one of the most progressive systems of funding education of, of almost any state in the nation. Hmm. 
in other words, if you go to a low income area, uh, an income, an area with uh, a lot of students that qualify for a free reduced lunch, a lot of students that are special needs, they receive a tremendous amount more than students in more affluent areas from the state. And in fact, the state is able to offset differences in the local property tax collections um, in a way that ensures that students are receiving a whole lot more money in those uh, difficult to teach, difficult to learn areas. And we're not seeing any improvements in those areas. And we have it for generations before school choice. And we are starting to see uh, because of charter schools and private school voucher programs and the increase in homeschooling, some very positive signs in student performance. So, um, you know, there's just a, a whole uh, a lot of talk about the power of money to be able to transform education and improve it. And in rare instances, it does, but those are instances really are rare. And um, the idea that we just need uh, one more dollar to improve education is, is, a, is really a silly idea, is an idea that is born from a system that is addicted to uh, taxpayer dollars, and yet um, it cannot tell us how many dollars are necessary in order to achieve this uh, ideal state of education, uh, adequate education for all children. Instead, it's a perpetual ask where no dollar amount is ever enough. And uh, that might be more of a rant than an answer, but it's one of the frustrations that I have, uh, not only as, a, as an education analyst and a researcher, but as a parent, that um, no dollar amount ever seems to be enough. And no one can ever give enough. And only if we take as many dollars from others as we can uh, to give to the public school system, will they ever be satisfied? And then they probably won't be at that point either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and, and you mentioned a couple of good things there. You know, one is we do have sort of a, you know, if you want to call it a control group, you know, there was a time when you didn't have all of these options and all the money was being spent on traditional public education um, and it wasn't better. And so that, and in fact, I think the fact that it wasn't better is exactly what prompted the school choice movement is parents started to wake up and say, there's got to be a better way to do this. My child's not getting the education I want, you know, with respect to wherever they were. So I think that's important. Also, I think you alluded to the fact that, you know, the, the data does not show or the data shows that there is no, uh, or if any at all, very little. And I believe it's no correlation between educational achievement and dollars spent per student. I mean, we know the D.C. public schools, I think they they have some ungodly amount, like $20,000 or something crazy per student. And they're some of the worst schools in the in the country. So the, the, the money doesn't necessarily make the difference. And even if it did, like you said, they cannot give you a dollar amount to say, well, if we only had this amount, then we would be better. And I think we also know that charter schools and non-public schools or private schools uh, operate on, quite frankly, a much lower amount per student and often with better results. So yeah, it's very interesting about the money argument. It's, it's an easy one to, to throw out there and it certainly gets attention, but the data doesn't bear it out. Um, the second objection here is that it's this idea of, of sort of a you know, performance bias. So, so school choice advocates argue that students in charter schools and private schools are performing better than traditional public schools. And therefore, hey, guys, come over here. We've got something better for you. And the North Carolina Policy Watch uh, argues in their article that, well, that difference, you're just cherry picking. The differences 
between non-traditional public schools and public schools is just a function of geography and affluence. So people who live in rich areas with, you know, solid traditional families, they're doing better, et cetera, versus it having anything to do with the schools are going to. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, let's be clear. So, sometimes it is. I mean, sometimes affluence makes a, a huge difference in how a school is performing. Um, and there, it's hard to pin down exactly why that is, but parental involvement and parental engagement has, has a lot to do with that. Um, so one would think that we want to increase parental engagement uh, as much as possible in order to, to try to take some of those benefits for all students. But we have empirical studies. Uh, these are random assignment studies, and these are studies that essentially control for all of those variables. They control for geography. They control for socioeconomic status. They control for all of the factors that may play a role in uh, advantaging one group uh, against another. And in those studies, we find that um, uh, students in schools of choice are performing uh, as well, if not better than students in, in traditional public schools. We have 17 studies that focus on test scores, uh, 11 show positive effects and four show no effects on students. We have seven studies that focus on educational attainment, things like graduation rates, college going rates, five show positive effects. This is when all of those uh, variables like geography and affluence are, are all equal and uh, we can determine what is really having the effect on students. And, and the thing that is having the effect is access to the school of choice, that the school of choice, when all things are held equal, are ensuring that students are attaining more, they're having higher test scores, as well as a, a number of other benefits. Uh, for example, we know that there is um, no evidence that students say that are attending a, a private school or a school of choice are necessarily uh, any less engaged civically. And they're not voting less. They don't understand less about the United States. In fact, um, anecdotally, even if we put all this rich resource, uh, research behind uh, and aside, uh, most of the private school students that I talk to know a heck of a lot more about this country and about and, and are a heck of a lot more civically engaged um, than students that are coming out of traditional school districts. Uh, we know that um, there isn't any evidence that uh, private school choice programs necessarily lead to uh, racial or socioeconomic uh, uh, segregation. Uh, instead, uh, these schools tend to be actually increase integration, uh, and there are lots of mechanisms by which that occurs. Uh, but the truth is that um, when the, the research that holds all of these other variables equal tell us that private school choice in particular has tremendous benefits for the, for the children that attend those programs. Um, and these, this is really the gold standard of research. These aren't research studies that are being done on the fly by individuals who are um, not necessarily understanding solid research methods. These are really the gold standard in social science research that tells us that these students truly are benefiting from uh, school choice. And it's really refreshing to see so many individuals now engaged in school choice research, and uh, they, they are finding again and again 
that the research that we've had over the last few decades on private school choice programs continue to affirm the fact that they're beneficial for students. Yeah, that's great to know. And I think, you, you know, you raised a point uh, right at the beginning of that that I think is important, too, that I don't think any school choice advocate is saying that all charter schools are better or all private schools are better. In any free market, you're going to have good businesses and bad businesses. And there's going to be some folks that are going out there and maybe they have good intentions, maybe they don't, but but they're going to they're they're not going to produce a good product and the beauty of school choice is that if those products aren't good they will fail they will close and better schools will take their place and that's what we want i think that's all any of us want is we want the best options for our children and allowing a school choice environment a free market environment uh, helps create and promote that um kind of going back to the opportunity scholarship um and again just to, to kind of reinforce for the audience so this is the state voucher program um, this is not the state just giving money to people off the top. This is essentially reallocating tax dollars that have already been given to the state. I think that's important um, because I think it's it's often positioned in a way that makes it sound like uh, the state's just given extra money to rich people or something. So uh, these are tax dollars that people have already contributed um, and it, they're reallocating. But uh, uh, opponents of school choice argue that the opportunity scholarship is unconstitutional because it funds religious schools. And I know, in fact, there's actually a case uh, pending right now in the state court of appeals uh, with respect to that. What's your what's your position there, and, and what can you tell us about that? Yeah, the, and the case is basically relitigating a, a, a case that had already been decided by the Supreme Court that affirmed the constitutionality of the opportunity scholarship program. Uh, you know, the truth is that the, the U.S. Supreme Court has already affirmed the right of parents to direct public dollars to religious institutions in its Zellman versus Simmons-Harris case in 2002. Uh, but just generally and philosophically, think about how uh, we direct public dollars to private and religious institutions all the time. We have uh, public dollars that follow students to religious preschools. We have a voucher program, essentially in North Carolina, uh, of a preschool program. NC Pre-K allows parents to take public dollars to public, private, or religious preschools, uh, depending on their preferences and their needs. We public dollars follow students to colleges uh, and universities, religious private colleges and universities. Uh, public dollars fall patients to religiously affiliated hospitals, care centers, and programs, and public dollars flow to churches for after-school programs. Uh, so we, the, the idea that uh, in all these other areas, it's okay for public dollars to follow uh, uh, citizens to religiously affiliated or church-based uh, programs or institutions, but in K-12, it's not okay is a very silly kind of uh, a way to think about uh, the allocation of private dollars to religiously uh, or church-based institutions. And so uh, not only is it affirmed by the courts, it's accepted by individuals that this is a sound practice. And uh, I think the individuals that object to it uh, are essentially just using it as a way to try to uh, uh, 
undermine uh, programs that are, are very popular with parents to uh, dismiss uh, church-based programs as uh, uh, inferior in some ways to traditional public schools, which is, uh, from what I have seen, absolutely not the case. In fact, it's comical uh, the way that uh, religious-based and church-based instruction is depicted by a lot of these critics as uh, talking about um, uh, sort of doctrines that have been disproven or, or, or just try to undermine uh, the instruction that's provided at church-based schools. Uh, honestly, the, the type of rigor that I've seen in a lot of church-based schools far exceeds that in the, in the district system. And uh, the schools, uh, the children that attend uh, should only be so lucky as to be able to attend schools um, that have a religious affiliation, given how rigorous they are um, and given how formative they are for so many of these students being not only receiving a, a solid intellectual education, but one that really forms them as an entire human being. And it's interesting, too, that, you know, kind of going back to just allowing school choice in the first place, I think a lot of the arguments to even allowing private schools or other alternatives was around the idea of, oh, well, see, you're, you're segregating society because only rich and affluent children can, can afford such an education, and therefore that's not fair, and that's how you're dividing people up. So then we say, okay, you know what? You're right. Let's take the tax dollars and give those lower-income families an opportunity to go to some of those better schools, and then now they say, oh, well, no, we shouldn't do that either. So, you know, you can't have everything. You, you've you've got to you got to pick a side, I guess, in this case. And, and in their eyes, it's really just a matter of limiting choice. And for all of the talk of diversity and inclusion and, you know, acknowledging the different uh, beliefs and thoughts of people and how they want to raise their children, the fact is, is that a lot that they're opposed consistently to a pot to policies that would promote that. So it's unfortunate, but it is, uh, it is the truth. And let me point out one, one th real quick thing here. Uh, sure. The, uh, case that's working its way through the courts is a challenge to the Opportunity Scholarship Program, but the opposition uh, in North Carolina doesn't seem to want to take on the other programs the uh, for special needs children. So they are specifically attacking a program that is for low-income children and saying that that's unconstitutional but uh, they don't want to touch the one for special needs children. It's, and it's obvious why, because it would be really, it would anger a lot of parents that they're going after special needs children. And the question should be, why is the left comfortable going after one and not the other? And does the left truly believe that the Opportunity Scholarship Program is unconstitutional, but really doesn't really have a problem with the one for special needs students? And so this is one of the many ways in which uh, that there are mixed messages coming from opponents of school choice, and specifically when it comes to those who are challenging the state's uh, voucher programs, that they're okay with attacking low-income children, but they are not okay with attacking special needs children. That's a great point. Um, any other common objections that you've run into over time that you think are worth mentioning? Uh, well, you know, I, I've come across a lot of objections. I don't actually think all any of them are, are worth uh, mentioning because uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of validity uh, to them. But you, you hear objections uh, to things, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, racial and socioeconomic integration. 
of uh, civic engagement, of educational attainment. And we have all the research in the world that tells us that not only do private school choice programs uh, not worsen any of these outcomes, they actually improve uh, students and these outcomes in these different areas. So uh, one uh, complaint that we hear a lot about homeschoolers is that um, for example, they're not, um, they, they, they lack the social skills to be successful in society. I think that's a joke. Um, so, you know, you hear these uh, objections that have, have just kind of, uh, uh, they have been around for, for so long and they have been thoroughly debunked by research, but so many parents uh, and so many individuals and especially so many politicians still hold on to these uh, mistaken beliefs about the so-called detrimental effects of school choice. When the reality is, is that uh, when you talk to parents, when you look at the research, when you talk to school leaders uh, in private schools and charter schools, you start to realize that a lot of the objections we've heard to school choice programs in the past really don't play out. Uh, and, and so, uh, I, it's, it's hard to take a lot of these objections seriously. And we have found that in the past, so many of these, these objections to, to school choice were held by these middle uh, and upper income parents that lived in areas where there were great public schools and so never had to worry about school choice. And they would say, ah, oh, you know, the homeschoolers, uh, they, they're, they're not going to be a well-adjusted private schools. Oh, I don't need to pay for a private school because my child is in a good district school. And then COVID hit and the schools started to shut down and these middle and upper income families started to say, oh my goodness, um, I need to start rethinking the prejudices I had about private schools and charter schools and home schools. Uh, otherwise, my child is not going to receive a sound education. And that is where I've seen the biggest transformation, that a lot, all of these myths that um, the upper middle class and perhaps even the upper class had about school choice started to go by the wayside once they had to start accessing school choice for their children during the pandemic. That is the absolute transformation that the pandemic has had on the school choice movement, is that the myths that were maintained by those who were already in good private or good public schools um, uh, started to wither away once uh, they started to recognize that their very good public school wasn't going to reopen and that they needed to find choices fast. And this group of parents started to recognize that school choice was good for everyone, uh, not just special needs or low income right. children, but their children would benefit from, uh, from, from school choice in ways they never imagined possible. Yeah, so glad you mentioned that. It definitely has been transformational. And it's also nice to know that at least one good thing has come out of the pandemic. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's nice. Um, so uh, with all that said, and obviously a lot of progress has been made over the years, uh, as we've mentioned here, what's the what are the next best steps uh, or the next best steps for school choice going forward? What what things uh, do you think we need to do to continue to make progress in this area? Well, the first one might sound a little weird, but this year I think we need to celebrate. And, and what we need to celebrate is the fact that this year North Carolina is going to hit a milestone 
where one in four children in this state will enroll in a school of choice. That is one in four children will be in a home, private, or charter school. That is a remarkable achievement for a state that just a decade ago uh, was was barely finding a one in 10 in schools of choice. So so this is a remarkable achievement uh, for the school choice movement and everyone involved. And it's not just me, it's not just elected officials, it's families, um, it's grandparents, uh, and it's the children themselves that have created a watershed moment in school choice in North Carolina. But from a policy standpoint, I think it's absolutely critical that we change the way we fund North Carolina schools. Because right now we have a a convoluted system that funds uh, uh, schools based on enrollments and and basically dozens of other factors that uh, make it almost impossible to understand where the money goes uh, to uh, educate students. We need a student-based model, backpack funding, where the money follows the student. Uh, Initially, it could follow the student just to uh, district schools, but eventually that money should follow the student to whatever school the child is best educated at and whatever school a parent believes is in the best interest of their child. Right now, uh, we don't have a backpack or a student-based or weighted student funding model in North Carolina. We have a a resource allocation model that's very difficult to understand that um, really has needed to be revamped for decades now. We have started the movement in North Carolina to try to revamp the way we fund schools. We have had a lot of resistance uh, from elected officials because it's scary, frankly. And there are a lot of elected officials that don't want to see a weighted student or a student-based model because they know that if fewer students attend a district school, then those district schools will receive less money. They want schools to continue to receive their current amount of money, regardless of how many students attend that school. And we think that that is a really silly way to approach it. Uh, We would love to see a student-based model in North Carolina that really responds to the parents' uh, desires and wishes and, and really directs the money based on where the parent think the child should go, rather than just automatically sending money to school districts because that's the way that we've done it for years. Yeah, and I think you hear that a lot among school choice advocates. Uh, I've seen the phrase uh, a lot lately, fund students, not systems. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately what we're trying to get to there, which which makes sense. Um, what are the key threats to school choice in North Carolina? Well, uh, you know, it, it is uh, it, they're, they're the threats that really have always existed to, to North uh, Carolina school choice movement. Uh, The teacher union, the North Carolina Association of Educators, is a staunch opponent of school choice. Uh, The North Carolina Democratic Party, of course, has been an opponent of of school choice. And that's not to say that within the Democratic Party there aren't champions for school choice, because there are, especially in the Black Caucus of the Democratic Party. But the mainstream leaders of the Democratic Party, which tend to be the wealthier 
white Democrats uh, don't like private school choice. They don't like homeschooling. They don't like charter schools. And they would love if they were able to attain a majority in the General Assembly, place new limits on, on school choice if they could. Uh, so, so that is, is a, a couple of the, the political uh, actors that are opposition to school choice. The mainstream media still doesn't like um, school choice. They're still suspicious of it. And they're really willing to, uh, I guess, as an arm of the teacher union and the Democratic Party, play along in opposition to school choice and insist that it's damaging public education. So the mainstream media is still an opponent uh, and will continue to be, although uh, that's dying uh, as well. So we, you know, we'll, we'll hear less voices from the mainstream media in opposition to school choices. They're able to dedicate fewer resources into being opponents of school choice. And then there's a number of public school advocacy organizations in North Carolina that oppose school choice, uh, Public Schools First NC, the Public School Forum of North Carolina. Uh, again, these are organizations that are specifically designed to uh, support the traditional public school system at the expense of everything else. And so it's natural that they're going to feel threatened by school choice because so many parents are now taking advantage of the choices that are available to them that uh, they are going to feel threatened by them. Uh, I think uh, as a state, though, we're seeing those voices really become the minority voices. They are becoming, they're starting to fade as more and more parents are demanding additional choices. And, and that is why I'm, I'm really hopeful about the school choice movement in North Carolina, is that despite all of the voices that are opposing uh, school choice and how well-funded they are and how loud and, and sometimes obnoxious they are, parents are speaking up. They're going to school board meetings, they're starting new schools, they're opting to homeschool. And as more parents continue to be voices in their communities for school choice, these uh, well-paid uh, uh, establishment school, uh, school choice opponents are going to become less of a factor in ensuring that all parents have access and resources to schools that meet their children's needs. Uh, it's, it's great to know. And it was when you mentioned some of those organizations that were uh, promoting solely public schools, um, I, that was news to me recently. I didn't realize there were I, I knew the Democratic Party and sort of the from the political side. I knew that those folks were opposed to school choice um, and obviously the teachers unions and, and those groups. I didn't realize there were also sort of nonprofit organizations uh, that were also doing the same. So it's good to know that those are sort of starting to fade off a little bit. Um, and hopefully as, as more stories are told of the benefits of these, especially lower income families or, or, or families with disabled children and the benefit that they are receiving from this opportunity to, to have choice, hopefully that will continue to sort of quiet uh, opponents on that front. Because, um, you know, I think ultimately, I, I hope we're all united in the idea that we want the best education possible for all the children in North Carolina. And so if parents say, I can get that somewhere else other than the public school, and we're not doing anything other than reallocating the tax dollars that are already there in the first place, I think that's a win-win for everybody. So I hope that continues. Um, Dr. Stoops, I can't thank you enough for your time today. You've been very generous. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all the information you shared. I hope you'll come back sometime. Yes, uh, thank you so much, and, and thank you for, for advancing the school choice movement in North Carolina. Um, you know, I think it's absolutely 
uh, a watershed moment in, in this state and, and to be able to be part of it. And I, and I am glad that you're part of it uh, is, is a real privilege and an honor. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I can't thank Dr. Stoops enough for his time. Hope you got some good information from it. And so now let's get to some action we can take. So in thinking about action this week, again, uh, sort of keeping in our school choice theme, um, make sure you or those you love take advantage. You know, there's a lot of school choice options out there. Um, And, you know, as you've heard throughout this show today, um, we've made so much progress. There's so much opportunity. There's no reason for any family in North Carolina to feel trapped. Um, and if you do, then, you know, I encourage you to seek out those who can help you navigate um, these choices. Certainly feel free to reach out to me if you want. I will do anything I can to help. Um, but the bottom line is, is to help uh, families do what they think is best for their children because parents know best. Um to kind of give some specific things here that you can do one is education is your responsibility at least and i'm talking to parents here education is your responsibility not the government's so you know think about that you don't have to wait on government or any other entity to come along and do what's right for your children you are the one that has been empowered to do it it's always your choice you have the choice at any time um, to make a different decision um, for, for your child Also, there's no such thing as value-neutral education. I want to make that clear to everyone. A lot of times when we think of traditional public schooling, we think of something that is somehow morally benign. We we think of traditional public schooling as well. They don't really have a viewpoint. Um, You know, it's not religious. It's not not religious. It's just neutral. And the truth is, is that all education presumes a worldview. In other words, as you teach anything, there has to be an underlying view of the world and how it got there and where everything comes from. Because all of these things aren't absolute. There's there's no absolute proof in terms of where the universe came from or how the universe got to the way, way, way it is. So some people subscribe to uh, you know, Christian traditions, other people ascribe to other traditions, but the bottom line is, is that it takes a leap of faith for anyone to say where things came from, how they got to be, and why people make the decisions that they make. And so, you know, for example, is man inherently evil or is he inherently good? So on and so forth. These aren't things that can be studied and proven through a scientific test. And so, therefore, there has to be a value judgment made by whoever is doing the education. And so within the traditional public schools, just to give you an example, the assumption within, the, within that system is that there is no God. That is the position that they push forward. Now, they don't go into class and explicitly say that, but it's implied by giving you a narrative of where the universe came from and how things originated without talking about God. If God is removed completely from the conversation, the implication is that he does not exist. And so that's a reality that we have to acknowledge is that whatever education system you choose for your child, there is a value system underpinning it. And therefore, you as a family have to know, and especially as parents, you as parents have to know what you value. So when it comes to how do I make this choice for my family, like am I doing the right thing Um, or I'm about to have children, you know, what should I do or whatever the case may be? The first thing you have to think about is, what is it that we value? 
Where does man come from? Where does the universe come from? How did we get here? Where are we going? What's the meaning of life? All of these sort of difficult questions that that sort of presuppose the way we look at everything, our worldview, you have to figure out what that is. And then once you figure that out, then you need to find a school that aligns with those values. So whether it is, again, whether it's traditional public school, whether it is um, private school, home school, whatever it is, wherever you have to go to get that value system that aligns with yours, that's where you should put your child. The last thing here is don't let money be the reason. There's, there's too many things that we can do. And yes, it, you are going to have to sacrifice. That, that's, I mean, for most people, that's just the way it's going to be, right? Most of us aren't you know, wealthy and, and, you know, financially independent and and on and so forth. And so we have to make adjustments in our life, but it is worth it. I promise you it's worth it. Um, The Opportunity Scholarship is there. I encourage you to look that up. I'll put links in the show notes to that. Um, You you would be surprised how high the income level is now. I think for a family of four, the um, maximum income level now is somewhere around 90,000 or something like that. They also continue to increase the opportunity scholarship amount, as you heard um, Dr. Stoops mention in the interview earlier. Um, so the opportunity scholarship is there. You know, sometimes you might have to make a tough life decision. You, know, you might have to change jobs. You might have to move maybe to a better area or to an area that has a school that meets your needs or that, you know, has the type of financial arrangement that you can work with. Um, or you may need to do homeschooling. Um, And I know a lot of you out there may be thinking, well, you know, I I don't want to be one of those crazy homeschool people. My wife and I said the same thing. You know, there there was a time in our life when, you know, before we had children, we thought we'll never be the crazy homeschool people. And then we were. And you know what? We weren't crazy. We were just doing what was best for our children. And no one should apologize for that. It's your responsibility. And one day you as a parent will have to stand before God, whether you believe in him or not, and you will have to answer for the little ones that he has entrusted to you. And so it's your responsibility and your obligation to do the very best you know how for them. And then I guess sort of along the same lines, you know, with not letting cost be the reason is I just want to encourage you to say that you're not trapped. Where there is a will, God will make a way. I believe that with all my heart. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others. When we do what God has called us to do, He will be faithful. He will open doors. He will open windows. He will make a way for you to do what is best for your child. So be encouraged in that. Education is so important. It, it, it feeds our culture. It feeds the next generation. It's a fundamental building block of our society. And whoever controls education, however our children are educated, that will determine what the next generation will look like. So, you know, for those of you listening here on this podcast, you value freedom. You want to be free. You want your children to be free. Well, if that's true, then we have to continue to teach freedom. We have to teach them where freedom came from. We have to teach them what makes us free. And that has to be sustained for the long term. So it's important, it's so important for us to take advantage of school choice so that we ensure that the values that we hold dear as, a, as not only families, but as a society moves forward. 
Well, folks, I hope uh, you enjoyed the show today. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the First and Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and give it a five-star review. That'll help ensure other freedom-loving uh, North Carolinians can find it as well. Um, of course, you can find the show on Apple, Spotify, Google, or anywhere you go for podcasts. Um, we're also on Facebook and Getter, so if you want to follow the show there, uh, that would be great as well. Um, finally, if you have any additional feedback or show topic ideas, you can email me directly at firstinfreedom1776 at gmail.com. That's firstinfreedom1776 at gmail.com. Or you can share them on the Facebook or Getter page. Until next week, folks, be first in freedom.